Hello, and welcome to Brew Theology. This is Janelle. I'll be your host this week as we talk about Sikhism. On the podcast, we'll be interviewing Dilpreet Jammu, the head of Colorado Six. He is also a member of the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado. On our interview, we'll be talking about what Sikhs believe, how their community functions, and things that you might not have known about the fifth largest religion in the world. If you'd like to learn more about Brew Theology, you can find us at brewtheology.org. You can follow us on Facebook at Brew Theology, on Instagram at Brew Theology, but on Twitter, it's Brew underscore Theology. If you have any questions from our interview, please let us know, and we'll do our best to get you an answer. Thank you very much, and enjoy the podcast. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Brew Theology. I'm here with Ryan and our special guest tonight, Dilpreet Jammu, and he is the Sikhs Colorado leader and also is on the Interfaith Alliance Council in Colorado. And so tonight we're going to talk about Sikhism. I need to get it right. Um, And that's one of the things I think that a lot of us uh, overlook when we talk about Sikhism is we say it wrong. So it is Sikhism, and when you say it plural, it's six, like the number. And so tonight we're going to talk about Sikhism, and we're basically going to let actually Dilpreet talk about Sikhism, because he's amazing, as you're going to hear. And uh, we're going to ask questions, and he's going to talk to us and teach us a whole bunch of things that we don't know. So welcome, Dilpreet, to our gathering. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. We're glad to have you. Um, so we'll just start with the basics. Um, what is Sikhism and where does it come from? So Sikhism uh, is one of what's known as the Dharmic faiths. And uh, it, along with uh, Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, uh, Sikhism uh, was born originally uh, on the South Asia, in, in what's now known as South Asia, uh, what is now known as India, and in the state of Punjab, which is between Pakistan and India today. And Sikhism, the best way to describe it, is a monotheistic faith, which is considered probably one of the first universal religions uh, because of its acceptance in terms of people, humanity, and in terms of belief structures. So that is what uh, Sikhism is, and it was born originally in about 1469 uh, with one of our founders whose name is uh, Guru Nanak Devji. That is how we refer to, to the founder of our faith, uh, Guru Nanak Devji. And he was the one who brought forth the principles uh, and belief structures. But one of the things I'm going to highlight is Dharmic faiths are not just about belief structures, they're about doing things in life and following up on the doing side as well. So that in a nutshell is what Sikhism is about. Yeah, so uh, we talk a lot about in, in our faith, which there's going to be some of that compare contrast because all Janelle and I know is this Judeo-Christian sort of paradigm mixed with some mutts around Denver and so forth through college and whatnot. <laughs> uh, but w- when we think about like works and deeds, often in the Western world, we, we talk about them separately in dualistic terms. So let's let's be Western Westerners for a second. Let's be dualistic. So what are the core beliefs? What would you say outside of the deeds are the specific doctrinal 
aspects of your faith? That's a heavy question, man. You know, I, I love no, I, I love it because um, the fact is that doctrine is what you look at uh, in terms of the studying uh, of things because we all try to uh, categorize. So let me just walk through probably what I would call two or three of the key tenets. Okay, the first one is of course a belief in one God, uh, one source, one Creator, and we believe that that source, that Creator has many names. So as a faith and from a belief point of view, uh, we accept any religion that says we believe in the one source or the one creator, okay? Because ultimately, if I say I believe in one God and you say I be- you believe in one God, and if there is only one that we believe in, then by default we are all worshiping the same source or the same creator. Okay, so we that is one of the key uh, elements of it. The second key element, which is in there, has to do with equality, and that entire equality is has to do from gender all the way down and towards caste. So let me just walk through that briefly. From a Sikhism point of view, uh, men and women have equal stature in terms of uh, a spiritual journey or a spiritual path. So from a point of view of Sikhism, men and women are considered equal. But I'll go beyond that. The gender does not matter. Okay, What does also not matter is the color of your skin. Because again, we are all part of one human race. So none of that matters. Your entire uh, orientation does not matter because that's one of the questions which pops up. You know, how does Sikhism view uh, LGBTQ and other stuff? That does not matter. Okay. Your political beliefs do not matter, though I think there's probably political parties out there that believe that they are the path to God. But in fact, your political beliefs are part of your daily life, as I like to call it. But it does not matter as well. And then finally, caste does not matter, and your social status does not matter. And the, the best way I can put it is you're not going to use your corporate jet to get to heaven, no matter how much you believe that that's achievable. So your wealth level and your social stature does not matter. What does matter is that you're a human being. And as a human being, you deserve the respect that is required. Uh, and if you are suffering, you need to be taken care of. So from a Sikhism point of view, those would be you know, the fundamental tenets in terms of equality. Then the third component, I would say, that is a part of that belief structure is that to become one with the source is through meditation and through prayer. Both of those I will use simultaneously. But it is not just about praying once a week, once a month. It is being in constant memory of or in constant meditation on the source that is the ultimate goal, okay? So those would be what I would call the general uh, belief structures. Uh, you will also hear along the values of Sikhism, and, you know, those we call like what we call Nam Japna, which is to meditate or to remember the source, uh, Kirtkarna, which is to do honest labor and honest work, and then Vandike Chakna, which means to share with others the earnings that you have achieved. So that would be my long answer in terms of the beliefs of Sikhism. Yeah, no, thank you. That's good. Opens up so many questions. So I guess um, I'll start with like the first one. I come from a background where I'm 
pretty comfortable saying I'm Trinitarian. So in the Christian tradition, that means that I believe the Godhead is one, but manifests in three persons, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. What does Sikhism have to say about that kind of idea? So here's how I'm going to word it, because um, within Sikhism, there is no mention uh, of that type of a concept, what, you know, what I would call the Trinity. Some people may interpret certain things. I, I don't. Within Sikhism, there is the guru, but the guru is just the messenger. All right? And because the source or the creator is found in all of us, right, in essence, the guru is just someone who's enlightened and who can help you cross the world ocean, as I like to call it. But there is really no trinity. Okay, The concept of a trinity uh, does not exist within Sikhism the way it does in, in certain Christian faiths yeah. okay, and belief structures. For us, the best way to put it is, at the end of the day, it's just God. Everything is about God. Everything is about the source. And everything else that you see uh, is, can be a manifestation or an interpretation of it, but ultimately everything goes back to the creator, to the source, to the divine. So then this source is transcendent and yet also imminent. This, uh, it's, uh, but you wouldn't, it's not like a big God man in the sky. And you were, you said that at the pub last week. Let's talk more about, yeah, the theology, the actual God part of the source. Okay. Because it's a mystery. And it's also a mystery probably in a lot of other faiths as well. Right. But the way in which you define it um, specifically at the pub is very different and unique from a very from a Western understanding of God. Right. So uh, uh, let me uh, just state. Let me let me go with what it is not. And you use the, you just noticed I said it. Okay. Yeah. And I'm referring to the source, the Creator. From a Sikhism point of view, uh, it is not a Mister God. All right. And and I alluded to this during the uh, the discussion earlier uh, at the at the pub. We do not have a Mr. God, and the best way to describe Mr. God is he is sitting at a t table in a chair, sort of like a management structure, and he's looking down, uh, and he's saying, this is not right, this is all wrong. It's a, and it, it, the, the Mr. God can be vengeful, uh, he can be angry, uh, he can be spiteful, he can be hurt by what humans have done. Well, from a Sikhism point of view, those are all attributes that do not exist within the source or within the creator. Okay? We do not see those as being what I would call a Mr. God. Okay? And what is God from a Sikhism point of view uh, is, are things like love and all the po positive types of attributes that you would think about. Here's the other thing. Because Mr. God is a definable entity who can sit at a table and chair, we do not see that as being God. God for us is not only outside of the creation, but also exists within the creation. So here, here's how I'm going to define it. From a Sikhism point of view, God is truly omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. And the way I'd word that is he's the only game in town. Uh, he's truly uh, omnipresent, so he's present everywhere, all right? And he's omniscient, which is all-knowing. So if you have got a God which is defined in those three words, then that source or that 
power is present everywhere, which means he's present equally in all places. And there are no places which are, are without God. And what that means is the source or the creator or God is also present within you and within you, okay, and within myself, in all the things that you and I are seeing, and uh, is a part of the conversation that we are having right now. It is not a separate being. Yeah. It, it kind of, and I don't mean this lightly at all, this is actually a compliment, it kind of sounded like at the, the pub and, and what you were just describing to kind of go along the lines of the Force in Star Wars, except that you don't have a dark side from what you've described to us. Um, but the, the, this ever-present uh, godness is with us always and in all things and works in all things. And that's... Um, Honestly, it sounds very beautiful. So, you know, what's interesting is you use the, the word, uh, you, you alluded to Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, my mom loved that movie because for her, it actually summed up the existence, the, the force. Now, I'm going to say, yes, there's not a dark side uh, to the source itself. Right? right. In terms of interpretation. But certainly there is darkness that exists within the world. So somehow that is manifest in itself as well, okay? But I love that comparison because uh, that was one of the movies my mom has always loved because it's like, yeah, it's about the force and being one with that source that is out there. Yeah, so this source, this oneness that's shared with all, it's moving us toward a greater goal, toward peace, toward love, toward goodness, toward, uh, some would say, righteousness, justice that flows like a river in some circles, but then there's a, you know, there's evil in the world. But you you would say that there's no Satan. There's no, but you, but there is evil. So what is there? A, is there a source? How how does uh, your faith and your tradition understand the dark side? Okay, so here's how I'm going to answer that. So let's let's talk about Satan and the the devil. There is no Satan and no devil within Sikh philosophy. All right, and and here 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 is here here's the rationale for it. And the fact is that if God is truly God and is all-powerful and is the only single power that controls everything, and now along comes another entity, and that entity starts to mess with God's plan, God's will, God's whatever, then by definition, God is no longer God. So as I said earlier, God is the only game in town. So we do not believe that there's any equal or anything that can mess with God's will. All right? So there is no external agent. Okay? So if you actually look at uh, Greek uh, mythology and other mythologies, you will always have the gods were always up in the mountains, right? looking down. Zeus was there, you know, head honcho, so to speak, uh, looking down. But it's a separate being. And so evil is also a separate being from everything else. From a Sikhism point of view, as I said, God is the only game in town. So the fact is that there is no Satan or there is nothing equal to the one that is all-powerful. Okay, so now the question becomes, where does all that evil stuff come from? And here's how I will answer it. As human beings, we do not focus on the source, on the creator, or on God. Okay, we wind up having relationships with things. 
And I alluded this at, at the pub during the, our conversation at the pub, but let me expound on it. As you develop relationships, I'm going to start with little kids, okay? Little kids wind up with mom and dad, but they also wind up with toys. So if you ever look at little kids, uh, they'll have a favorite toy. And when they wake up, my daughters did this, they were looking for that toy. And if that toy is not there, then they will start getting upset. Let's fast forward to adults. We have relationships with things. We have relationships with our computers. We have relationships with our cell phones. We have all sorts of relationships. And those relationships, in those things, we always want stuff. We're always wanting. Whether it's a marriage, you want something. Whether it is a business relationship, you're looking... What happens is over time, we start to identify with those relationships. We start to forget the source or the creator. And now we start having expectations of those relationships. If those expectations do not fulfill themselves, we go down a path of anger and resentment, which causes challenges. Okay? But on top of that, as we become interested in stuff, we now want to accumulate more and more stuff. And as we accumulate more and more stuff, that whole thing of greed starts to come in. And now we start to do things which go above and beyond what our basic needs are. And we now start doing things which are not good, what we would call evil. And that evil can come from belief structures. That's why you wound up with things like the Holocaust. That's, that, that sort of belief problem can occur through wealth accumulation. And by the way, Sikhism does not say wealth accumulation is bad. So don't, do not walk away from this conversation thinking that it says, oh, all, all material stuff. No. What it says is you have a relationship with things. And the most important relationship is the one you're not focused on. It's the one with the source and with the creator. The minute you start having that relationship and developing that even a little bit, then the other things are still there. All right. By the way, I, you know, I like nice cars. I, I like travel. I like having money. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, it's not the end all and the be all because when you become so hooked into that stuff, that is when you wind up down a path where you forget the source and now you start doing things to accumulate stuff which is there. But it's stuff. At the end of the day, it's stuff. So this sounds a lot like Buddhism, but with a God. In this, in this attachment sense, and, and in a way, you know, you can say the same thing about Christianity when Jesus talks about the same thing about, you know, uh, well, what does Jesus say about this? Uh, he says, <laughs> "Give all you have," and yeah, yeah. It's well, so you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting. You did the comparison with Buddhism because with with Buddha, we we do actually share a lot with a number of the faiths. But here's I'm going to answer that. Yes, okay. Uh, with Buddhism, we share that whole concept of, uh, of sukh and dukkh, uh, which is, you know, comfort and difficulty, and that life is always up and down. And there's, there's a, you know, in certain uh, beliefs from a Buddhism point of view, uh, the very same thing that gives you pleasure now is going to cause you pain later. So that's really that whole up and down. So we share that. Uh, we share a belief in terms of oneness of humanity. So there's, so, so there's many. But what I will say is, because you brought up Jesus, the fact is that when it comes to faith and to the religions and the dharmic traditions, I would have to say that the truth has been revealed probably many times in many places, and what happens is we just forget about it. Okay? So I would say that all faiths have a portion of the truth already built in and probably had things revealed before which are now forgotten and are no longer in their teachings for whatever reason, for time, 
things moving on, people forgetting. Mm -hmm. But I think the truth has been revealed many times uh, because it's all coming from that one source. And, but it's how it's interpreted and how it's lost. Uh, that is what you're looking at. Well, yeah, we live in the Western world, so losing your life to find your life sounds awful. Yeah. We're bombarded with just shit all the time. Right. <laughs> yep. Do you, um, along with dealing with your stuff, is there an emphasis on simplicity or minimalism? Is that encouraged or it's just if you are in good relationship with the source, the source will help you deal with your stuff the way that you need to? Uh, you know, I have not seen any focus on minimalism in terms of the teachings, but what there is is an emphasis on not getting into overaccumulation. Okay. Now understand each one of us, you know, Sikhism is about is a personal relationship right. with the source. So, you know, one man's 50 car garage uh, may be minimalist for that individual. Okay. What matters is that you, de to, you know, to your point, you develop the relationship with the source so that you can then have a better definition of all that other stuff so that you can look at it and say, yeah, here's what it matters. What I can share with you is me personally, uh, as I've gotten more into my faith and becoming more aware, certain things no longer matter. I, I just don't get all... I, my, I don't get my underwear in a knot, for lack of a better word. Right. Whether that is people and situations, whether that is a uh, material thing, uh, whatever. It's certain things no longer have that value. Simply, or I, I don't place the same emphasis on it. Okay? Right. They still have value, but the emphasis is no no longer there. Have That doesn't mean, from a, as a sick, and we're encouraged not to do this, doesn't mean you throw everything away. Uh, and head off into the mountains because you do have to exist within society. You have to add value to where you are. So yes, okay. But again, it's a personal relationship. So you get to define what matters and what doesn't matter. And as your knowledge level goes up and your relationship goes up, certain things become more important or less important. So this may be hard to answer, but I think sometimes in Christianity, at least, we experience a social pressure to meet certain norms of behavior, especially when it comes to how we spend or how much we have or what we look like. Does Sikhism avoid that with this different emphasis? Do, do you not compare between each other in the same way? So here's the, here's the funny thing. What I will say to you is, as a Sikh, I think our community has all the same issues that you're describing. Okay. Those are universal, right? Because yeah. the minute you wind up with stuff, everybody's got a different relationship with this stuff. Some folks whose, whose spiritual path is not where it's going to be at another point are going to do comparisons. Growing up, I did comparisons, mm -hmm. okay? But so they're, they're, you are not immune to stuff, all right? And here's, here's what I want to say. The power that stuff has over people is because the source made that stuff powerful, right? It is our, that relationship has been made powerful. So the only thing that can break it is the relationship with the source, the one that made the stuff in the first place. So I would say our community has all the challenges and does all the same comparisons. This is my opinion, does all that same that every other community does, which is, you know, what are you wearing? What are they doing? Right. But in there, 
as in every other community, are people who are now moving through their spiritual journey, through their spiritual path, who are saying, eh, this doesn't matter as much, or I de-emphasize this. But we are not immune, okay? <laughs> I will tell you right now, in fact, we're reminded that you are not immune, all right? And just because you're a sick, you do not have some sort of immunization against this, because guess what? It is that powerful, because the very source that made you also made all these other things and defined the relationship that you've got with it. Does yeah. that sort of make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk to us about the choices that we actually have and the ones that we just think that we have? Because from what I understand from, from what you had said last week, not many of the choices that we have are really free will. It's, all, it's already been somewhat determined, Well, or if, not, if not completely determined. <laughs> so let, let me go a little bit uh, a little bit beyond that statement, okay? And what I'd like to say is your belief in terms of how f- much free will you have is truly based on the level of awareness that you have got, okay? So I'm going to come to the to that in a second. But the challenge you have is the level of awareness that you have is by the grace of the source, Okay? And so here's what that really means in terms of practice. You have as much free will as your ego allows you to believe you have in terms of free will. Okay? So the ultimate ego will say everything that happens is because I did it. It's me. Okay? I did this. I achieved this. I, it is the home, which in, in our language translates to the uh, I, me, or the me, me. So everything's about me, 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 in terms of even beliefs of free will. And the individual who is at that level uh, is truly mind-focused, is truly focused on the external. And the uh, I'm not going to talk about our politicians, but there's probably one politician you can think of. Probably one. Probably one, one. Who believes that everything is because of him. Okay, and that everything revolves around. So that is one level of belief in free will. At the other extreme is the belief that everything comes from the divine or from the source. And that is another, and that it's all predetermined. Within Sikhism, I would have to say that it leans more towards that it is your relationship with the source that allows you to determine how much free will you really got and how much you truly believe you have in terms of free will. Okay, because you don't control the weather. Uh, you do not control gravity, and you do not control so much. So the control that you have is over a very few number of limit, very fewer a number of limited things. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, yeah. That, make, that makes sense. So, but there's not a, you know, and, I, and we don't get into this uh, debate, uh, you know, because I try and avoid it. And that's where I like to just leave it. Free will, how much free will you have is determined by your level of, understanding that you have been given and the level of enlightenment that you have achieved and the awareness that you have of things other than yourself and your own ego. So for someone coming from the Wesleyan tradition where we have a a strong view of free will, if it's helpful to me in my journey to see the source, to, um, 
to quantify like my relationship with the source is one that has give and take. And so the source chooses to give me free will and give me choices that actually might fit inside of what inside the bounds of what it means to understand the source. As long as it's not, it's not all about me. It's about that for me to move forward from where I'm at, I understand that I have a relationship with the source and that's not a slave relationship. That's a willing relationship with give and take. That might be okay. You know what? Uh, if that works for you, that's great. Because again, in, because it's a personal relationship, I love what you just said. And, and here's why. I would take it that once you go one step beyond and say thank you to the source for having me given to for giving me this free will, you're now actually moving to a whole new level of discussion with the source. Okay. Okay. But if you sit there and you say, I've got free will all by myself, then I would say that's tough. Yeah. Right. That's a hard one for me as a member of the Sikh community yeah. right, with my belief structure. But what I will say is if you give thanks for having been given free will, that is now moving in line with the awareness with the source. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now you're giving thanks to a power greater than yourself. And that free will, in my mind, in my opinion, in my opinion, has greater value because you are acknowledging that there's something above and beyond that has given you a gift. Right. And free will is a gift. Absolutely. It's a gift. Right. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's talk about your holy scriptures. What what are they? I mean, I, I don't think I've ever read a word from the Sikhism literature. Have you, Janelle? No, I haven't. Not yet. So I want and I, to, and I, I wonder if any of our listeners have. So let's just assume maybe they haven't. Yeah, yeah. Give give us the dummy version. So there. Well, I'll give the following. Sikhism uh, has a scripture which is called the Guru Granth Sahib. Uh, it is a compilation of all the teachings of our ten guru of our gurus, and uh, it is one thousand four hundred and thirty pages long, about five thousand eight hundred some odd hymns, and the entire scripture is written in poetry form. And um, I'll give you a quick little story. The first Westerner who tried to translate was, I think, a German guy, and he got all annoyed and very frustrated. Uh, because he couldn't figure out the structure. Mm -hmm. He couldn't understand. He said, there's no chapters, this is useless, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Uh, and being European and all that at that time, um, he reached a conclusion that this was not important. Mm -hmm. Well, what's interesting is the, the scriptures are actually divided by musical measures. Because they're poetry, uh, there's 31 rags, or musical measures, and... Our scriptures are actually meant to be read. They are meant to be sung. Okay? And so it is purely natural that they are divided by musical measures. Okay? So that is what the scriptures are in terms of their overall. So let me give you what I call the really high level of it. Approximately half our scriptures are instructions to the mind. What do I mean by that? Here's an example. Uh, and I'll, then I'll translate, And what that translates is, Oh my mind, uh, stay forever focused on the divine. So that's an instruction to the, to the brain. And so half our scriptures are, approximately half, are instructions to the mind, and instructions about the mind as to what you need to do. 
So they're sort of like a recipe, for lack of a better word, or, or directives, or I wouldn't use the word directives. It is uh, uh, insights into the brain. The other half is what I would call actually praise, and in praise of the Lord, in praise of the Creator, and in praise of the Source. So the scriptures themselves are designed, for lack of a better word, to instruct your mind so that you can more easily focus on the source and begin to understand what the source is about. So in a nutshell, that is what the scriptures look like. Now, the other thing I'll tell you about our scriptures is the first uh, first, uh, uh, first prayer, um, which is called the Jepti Sahib, uh, is a total of about 38 stanzas, and it actually lays out the entire foundation. Okay, And in front of that, in front of those approximately 38 stanzas, is what we call the Mul Mantar, which is the root verse. And that starts with Ikonkar, where Ik means one in our language. So we're the only scriptures that I'm aware of that actually starts with the number. So all 1,430 pages start with that one. And are instructions to the brain and then hymns in praise of the source or in terms of the creator. That's it. It's that simple and that complicated. <laughs> so being somebody who is a Westerner, who I... I speak English, I read English, I flirted with some Spanish, Hebrew, and Greek back in the day. How would someone like myself even begin to read? Well, what's interesting is there are, and this did not exist in the 1960s and 70s, there are now actually translations in eight different languages uh, of the Guru Granth Sahib. And uh, so you can actually read it in English. If you go onto the internet and just uh, Google, you can go with SGGS and ask for a PDF, you will see the uh, English translations, the transliteration version, and the original Gurmukhi script that it was written in. But you would, you would probably recommend to do it with somebody who knows what they're talking about. Well, you ha- just... Having a guru, a mentor of, sort, of <laughs> sorts, yeah. So, well, the, the Guru Granth Sahib is, is the guru itself. Okay. okay. You don't need an external force because one of the things that uh, Sikhism uh, uh, puts forth, we do not have a priestly or a minister class. So really it's up to you to go and read any scriptures, whether if you're Christian, we encourage you go read the Bible yourself. We're not about having other people interpret. Now, having said that, given your question, if anyone's got any questions, I'll be happy to answer them. But really, it's about starting to do the readings and then starting to reflect and to think. That's what it's about. So, and I, I understand that there are no like a, there's no priestly sinner as there is in Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox, or even Protestant faith. But what about mentorship, discipleship, bringing somebody along who is just, you know, they're eager to learn, they're eager to do good in the world. Is that something? Do you have anything like that? So what happens for us is it is uh, having uh, the company of other members of the community uh, through prayer, through the meditation, and then through reading. So, yeah, we do have, you know, those types of, they're not institutions, they're not always formal, but there are explanations that will occur during our services. But more importantly, uh, it is about reading it and discovering it for yourself. So I, I, I'll i tell you personally, I do not get as much out of uh, listening to someone talk about it as I do in terms of reading our scriptures and then trying to interpret and to look at other readings and other people's thoughts on it. So that is the substitute. But there's not a formal way. It's done through your own journey. And um, 
I'd love it if there was a, a school, and there are now institutes that are doing this for our community. But I'll, I'll, the other thing I'll say is there's nothing better than actually spending time because a spiritual journey is about time, right? Think of where we started. Think of where you were uh, when you started your spiritual journey. You didn't even know you were on a journey, yeah. right? And now you are on that journey, and you're beginning to ask questions. That's the bigger component, and that can happen in any faith, not just in Sikhism, mm-hmm. right? And that's what faith is all about and religion or the dharmic traditions are about is that spiritual journey. And it becomes it begins with questions with, to which you then go and search for answers. Right, right. Okay. That's so good. do you have theologians or because you don't have what we would call pastors necessarily, but do you have people that spend a lot of time focused on um, learning about and understanding the culture and understanding the place of your your holy book. Uh, here's how I'm going to answer that question. I, I would say that we do have individuals who are recognized within the community uh, of having done the work, so to speak. But I'll, I'll give a personal example. My mom is the person I go to because she has spent 40 years uh, reading scriptures and the history and all that. So for me, she's a more reliable, plus she's on speed dial. Uh, is a much more reliable person. So I will ask her. So yes, there is a there's there are individuals within our community who are recognized. But I think what happens for us is we have many folks who are older and elderly, and and even some who are more enlightened who just have a natural gift. And my mom would be a great example of it. I will consult with her uh, before I'll talk to other people. But it has to do with that trusted relationship. Does that sort of make right. sense? Yeah. But there, you know, so far that uh, I'll go out on a limb here, and I'm sure someone will correct it. I don't think that there is um, a, until recently, there is anything like a PhD or a master's or something, the same way there is in terms of theologians within Christianity. Uh, it's much looser than that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because you're looking at it from a Western point of view, which is find me a minister, a spokesperson, a lead, and I'm saying, yeah, it's a little bit, a little bit different than that. So if you um, you're reading the scriptures, let's say someone's listening to this podcast, they get interested. Where do they go to meet other six that might live in their area? So here, I'll I'll refer to Colorado, but here in Colorado, there are uh, two gurdwaras or houses of worship. In the Denver area, there's one at Commerce City. It's probably our largest one, and then there's another one here in the in the Front Range, uh, south of the Denver Tech Center, and that's two great places. Uh, our community is, I'd like to say, very open, and so at any time you can go and visit. For those folks who are down in Colorado Springs, uh, there is a Gurudwara or a House of Worship down. So we've got three of those facilities. If anybody ever wants that, we can. I'll be more than happy uh, to get that information. And it's a great way to actually go to meet people, mm-hmm. uh, to partake in the lunger, which we haven't even talked about. Yeah. But you know, um, it's just a great way of of, of doing that. Well, good yeah. tra- good transition. The lunger is that how you pronounce it? Yep. So the word is lunger, and it rhymes with the word hunger. And the lunger is an institution which was uh, it, it was originally put in place by the first guru uh, Guru Nanak Dev Ji. But it was not what I would call institutionalized until probably the third guru. And um, the Langar is a free community kitchen, which is available with every Gurdwara. And, <coughs> excuse me, the food 
is uh, donated. It is cooked by members of the community, and it is served to everybody regardless of race, gender, religion, and worldwide today. So I'll talk about two things. The uh, the Golden Temple, which is one of our more revered sites for historical purposes uh, in India, is a gurdwara, which serves about 100,000 meals every single day. All of it is free, open to everybody. Uh, worldwide, we've estimated, and the Sikh press has estimated, we serve about 6.5 million meals uh, every single day, which is about 2.2 billion meals uh, every single year. And that is all done volunteer. It's all done through donations, no questions asked. That's amazing. Uh, it's a it's a phenomenal number. And keep in mind that that was done to generate equality, you know, to, to be be about equality. Because one of the things that happens is when you break bread with other people, uh, that's where the barriers start to go down. So it's all about equality. It's all about oneness. And uh, the guru put that in place so that you would in- interact with other people. Because if you think back to the 1400s, the caste system was in place. And the caste system did not uh, uh, foster relationships between the castes themselves. So if you were born into a caste, you pretty much spent time with people in that caste and did not interact or even share meals with other members of other communities. So it was designed to uh, break down those barriers so that people would uh, break bread and share meals with folks that they normally would not share with. So this is such a fascinating religion, and I know that most people have no idea, even though it's the fifth largest religion in the world, and a lot of it has to do with probably the fact that there's a weird deal with the turban and the beards, and people freak out because Westerners think, oh my goodness. And I mean, you, you, you see this a lot in the airport. People think, oh, it's yeah. a terrorist. And the, or and Muslim. It, or, yeah, and which is so bizarre. But let's let's talk about that because, I mean, I, I would say just on what you've talked about, if someone, if someone wasn't visually looking at you in the Western world, they would say, yes, sign me up. I want to be a Sikh. But then you go, oh, well, there's the turban and there's a the beard thing. So then let's talk about that because that's that's also fascinating as well if people just get over the roadblock of it being weird. So what do you want to know? I want to know the source of it. So let's talk about the source of the turban and the beard. Um, go back a few hundred years, about 300 years. So Sikhism uh, did not uh, start with just one guru. We had a succession of 10 gurus. So Sikhism is a system which developed over a 200-year period, just roughly 200, period, 200 years. And the first guru put the tenets of the faith and the structures in place. And then, as I mentioned, the Lunger, um, our scriptures and others, they got codified by the second and the third guru. The philosophy further developed and how the, our community was to interact with other faiths developed over that time. And it was around the time of the ninth guru that an interesting thing happened in that Um, There was a Mughal emperor uh, who was in control, and he decreed that uh, uh, he was going to convert the priests from Kashmir, the northern part of India at that time. And by converting them, his strategy was to go and then have their followers also convert. Well, the Kashmiri pundits, or the priests of that time, 
knew the ninth guru. So they approached him and they said, here's what's going on. And he put forth the following. He said, uh, go back to Jahangir, the Mughal emperor, and tell him that uh, if he can convert me, then you will convert and all your followers will convert as well. And of course, the emperor signed on to that. So the guru traveled to uh, New Delhi. He was arrested. Uh, the Mughal emperor tried to convert him. Uh, there was torture, all that stuff. And ultimately, he failed. So the bargain protected. What we learned from that is that it is not enough to speak out for your own faith, but you also need to respect the right to worship of other people as well. So as the story goes, another thing that happened at the time was the 10th guru asked, he said, well, when all this was going on, the torture and the difficulty, where were the six? Where were, where were our members of our community? And part of the answer that came back is that uh, they were there, but they just didn't say anything. And so he, the, our 10th guru, then instigated uh, the concept of the saint soldier. So we do not have a baptism at birth, we actually have a baptism when you decide to become one with the faith and to pursue the faith. And he is the one who then put in place the turban, uh, the beard, uh, what we call the kirpan or the sword, the kanga, which is one of the signs, one of the symbols of our faith, and the kachera or the kacha or the shorts. And all of these items were put into place to help distinguish. And because the philosophy is as follows, if you truly believe in something, and you're now enjoying the benefits of it, you also need to be ready to stand up and stand out and pay the price for it. So you cannot just take the benefits of something and not be willing to take on the other side. All right? So that, in a nutshell, was the whole creation of that separate identity. Does that cause problems? I would have to say in the U.S. it probably causes more problems than in other countries. Uh, countries like Canada um, and Britain, which have large Sikh populations, uh, do not have the same number of challenges with the turban and with the beard. And that has to do with how we, our media is and how we have grown up uh, as a nation. No, thank you very much. That was good. Um, do women have to wear any outward symbols? So the women will wear... Um, so let's talk about the turban first. Uh, they also do not cut their hair. And they will wear all the other symbols. Some Sikh women will wear a turban. Others will wear a shawl or, or, a, or a scarf uh, to cover their heads, but it is not the same as it is for males. Okay. okay? But yes, they do. They follow all the, the tenets. And you'll see, if, if you do ever go to a service, you'll see both men and women will have their heads covered. Is there a reason that men, that seems like a weird inequality with the emphasis on equality, that men, the turban is more required so here's how I'm going to answer it. If you actually look back at the history, there's evidence to indicate that women were wearing the turban as well. Somewhere along the time of the British Raj and other things, it appears that some cultural things happened. Okay. And that's why you will see uh, women now, uh, uh, and I don't you want to use the word devout, I will say that there are women who believe and they do wear the turban and others who choose not to. But there was something that appears to have happened during the time of the British Raj 
uh, which impacted it. And I think that'll self-correct over time because it's a great question, which yeah. is why is it that women are not mandated to wear a turban? And do women have to wear their hair covered at all times or um, can they go with their heads uncovered? So culturally, you will see many sick women uh, who will keep their head covered at all times and many others who will not cover their heads. So what's interesting is, I mean, I've got two daughters and I'll share with you. Uh, one of them wears a turban and the other does not wear a turban. And that's fine because mm -hmm. it's, it's an individual choice. It's part of your personal relationship. But both will cover their, make sure that their heads are covered at least when they're at services. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, so, and you did mention that there are problems in the U.S. Do you feel like you face some persecution here? Would you would you use that strong of a word, or is it more just um, being differentiated from the culture, and sometimes that's awkward? Yeah. I, what I will say to you is that uh, um, not. The, the vast majority of Americans that I have run into over the years are quite intelligent. Every now and then you'll run into somebody who has an opinion and is probably not as enlightened, and that's where you will have challenges. All right? As a community, uh, the turban is one of the things that is misunderstood. So we've had situations with the Department of Motor Vehicles here in Colorado uh, where because of an interpretation with the Department of Homeland Security, uh, they started asking Sikhs to remove the turban for photographs, for a DMV photo. So we got involved with that. So I would have to say that, yes, there are challenges. It has to do with the level of, of uh, awareness and intelligence of the individual. But the nice thing is there's plenty of people in our, in, in our country uh, who are actually interested in being knowledgeable about things. Good. So, yes, there are challenges. Yes, there's discrimination. Um, but the fact is, um, it is incumbent upon myself and our community to make sure that there's justice not only for ourselves in all these cases, but for other members as well, okay, other members of our community. And that's probably part of your, just your compassionate emphasis of being there for other people, and that includes yourselves, like standing up for those kinds of situations. Absolutely. What, what's interesting is I, I don't think, I, I think what helps uh, helps a society develop and go forward is when you help the other. It, it's very easy to help yourself. It's when you take the time to help what I call the other. That's when you're reaching out to members of community and you're forming a broader relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that uh, is what helps a country, a city, a community, a neighborhood develop is when you're willing to actually stand up and help what I call the other. Yeah. So one of the questions that we've asked people, and this has been a while, uh, what do you think is we kind of in this conversation is the most pressing issue of our time that maybe you're... I know everybody's on their own journey, but you specifically, what is, what's your focus right now? What's your emphasis uh, for, for the world and for your community? I, I think I can answer that one. For me personally, it's about compassion. I think what has happened is we as a nation are at a point where there seems to be a vast number of people who are all about themselves. And then there's the other half of the country 
which is about compassion and taking care and looking at that greater good. I'll say it's everything from capitalism to divisions of politics to divisions uh, in terms of the uh, of religion, differences of opinion and splits which have occurred. I think that is the biggest thing that faces us as a nation right now. It is finding our compassion again. Because once compassion is gone, it becomes very difficult to have conversations. It becomes very difficult to move forward. Because now you're looking at everything in, from a dualistic point of view. And it's amazing where the divides are occurring, if you actually stop and think about it. At the end of the day, we are all human beings. And what matters is that each one of us is on a spiritual journey, and every spiritual journey needs to be respected. And we need to start taking care of each other. And that's what really uh, stops all that quote-unquote evil from happening. It is that whole development in terms of becoming a compassionate human being and starting to realize that there's someone else other than ourselves. And I think that's where I would put the emphasis. It's about compassion. Well, as we, is there anything else you want to add? As, uh, maybe something we missed or uh, a, you know, a fun tidbit that you like to share that people don't usually know? So uh, let me just say, we're the fifth largest religion in the world, okay? And yet very few people know about who we are uh, and our beliefs and, and what we do. So the one tidbit I will share with you is I think our entire community uh, is open to having conversations. So if you run into anyone who you think is a sick based on what you understand, go up and talk to them and let's start opening doors and uh, opening dialogue. That would be my last tidbit. That's a great invitation. So thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. Cheers. 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 Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. And uh, if you have any questions or want to know more, just reach out to us and we'll make connections for you. Thank you so much for listening.